Well, we are back in Second Thessalonians together, even though we're not able to be together this week because of having to close in-person services once again because of this virus. I trust that one day we're not going to have to worry about this pesky thing. But we do appreciate your prayers. I appreciate the prayers for my family as we've been sick with the virus this past week, as well as have many in our congregation. And uh, I'm very grateful for Pastor Jeff handling the at-home worship service last week. And this week we come back together to study together, even if we can't be together physically, we come back to studying Second Thessalonians, coming back to chapter 1. And we look at this book of the Bible, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Thessalonica with the importance of working wisely. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we learn from his word together. Father, this strange season that our globe, our country, our church is within, it is all the more uh, impressed upon us the importance of doing the work of the ministry and being wise. And just as we always trust that you're guiding us through your word, that you're guiding us into the passages that you want for us to be studying together and the ideas that you want us to be growing from together, Lord, we see how the importance of working wisely in this day and age really is. And Lord, we think about the importance of working according to your eternal priorities, your eternal plan, your victory, your destiny that you have for your children from your word here as we look at it together. Allow your Holy Spirit to teach us, even though we're separate in different households, we pray, Lord God, that you would personally teach us so that when we come back together, we will have learned from you and we can continue to follow you together as a corporate body. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of working wisely is wearing the right safety equipment. We live in a culture that's always warning us, and for some reason it seems like it's usually a fear of a lawsuit or something. It's warning us about the dangers of certain things. I, I called the eye doctor recently to schedule an appointment and actually heard on the recording, if this is an emergency, please hang up and dial 911. I'm thinking, I don't think I would call an eye doctor if it was an emergency, but thank you. I think of how when I've put together Ikea furniture or some other type of furniture that comes with instructions, how uh, particularly the Ikea furniture comes with instructions with pictures on it. And no matter how simple, there's always a picture there of basically telling you, make sure to wear safety glasses when you put together this bookshelf. I wouldn't be surprised if they'd be putting a picture of safety glasses on the side of Legos pretty soon. But of course, there's a lot of scenarios in which it's important to wear safety glasses and, and how they're important for working wisely. Well, here from our passage, I want to speak to you this morning and tell you to always wear your destiny glasses. 
Similar to safety glasses for working wisely, I want to encourage you to always wear your destiny glasses. Destiny glasses remind us of the eternal destinies that are at play in our world. They don't protect our eternal destiny, but they remind us of the eternal destiny that we and others are facing. We pick back up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We reread 3 and 4 as kind of a review. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This, and he's referring to their steadfastness and their faith, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Work wisely and wear your destiny glasses, if you will. First, this means to look at affliction with eyes of faith. The persevering faith of the believers of Thessalonica was evidence of their being justified. As evidence of their justification in Christ, they were being shown to be recipients of the future kingdom for which they were suffering presently. This is what is meant when he says, this, this, your steadfastness and your faith is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. But then he goes on to say, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the persevering faith of the believers of Thessalonica, this was evidence of their being justified. If you've ever been traveling internationally and you return to America and you go through customs, it can be very relieving to, to be told, if you're an American, if you're an American citizen, go over into this line and you go over into this, that line and you get treated as an American. You're welcomed back into your country. And we're being told that it is a good sign to suffer for the kingdom of God. To do so with steadfastness and faith is further evidence that we're a part of God's family. I've thought recently about time I spent with uh, my youth pastor, Tim Tinsley. And 
I remember going on a trip to Mexico City with Tim. And as, a, as the leader of our group, the, the, uh, the cooks in the house, they brought out a very special piece of beef. And they gave it to Tim and, and they, they encouraged him, try this. This is yours to eat. And he was looking at it and he took a fork and Tim loved savory food. And Tim took his fork and he was just able to cut down through this thick piece of beef with just the side of his fork. And when he put it into his mouth, I saw his eyes roll back into his head and it was so delicious. He was nodding his head and saying, mucho gusto, I love it so much. And then through a translator, he asked them, how do you go about making it so tender? And they said, well, it's very important that first of all, you take out the piece of meat and you set it out on the counter for a week. Well, the, the bacteria that had been growing in this meat was, had been breaking it down, obviously, making it quite tender and, and somewhat rotten, I would expect. But the end result was this delicacy. Still, it turned out that the process was a little scary. Thankfully, Tim didn't get sick. But like that delicious piece of meat, the process of getting to our eternal home may be scary. It may be what we, we wouldn't design or we wouldn't desire it. But the end result is going to be the most amazing delicacy of glory, greater than we could ever imagine. First, look at affliction with eyes of faith, with God's relief in mind. This verse 6 is, is a parenthetical statement in the middle of the explanation of God's justice. It's why the first part of verse 6 is separated with commas in the ESV. I believe it's referencing a separate event of the rapture of the church. You could read it as God considers it just to grant relief to you who are afflicted. The point is being made here is the contrast. Relief for believers, affliction for unbelievers. And this term relief here, the original word is anison. Now, you, you, uh, those of us who are familiar with aspirin would recognize that anison is known as a brand of aspirin because anison means relief. We are encouraged to face affliction in this life with eyes of faith that look ahead to the relief that God will bring to us in the end. And secondly, I encourage you to look at affliction with eyes of faith, with God's retribution in mind. This is the main focus of these verses without the parenthetical mention of us, the church, you could read it as God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance. This is the dreadful day of the Lord that marks the devastation of unbelievers. God has always promised to deal out justice for his persecuted people. He said so to his privileged people Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verses 34 through 36 where he writes, Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. 
For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. He also writes in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 through 16, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots, like the whirlwind, will render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many." The ultimate doling out of justice will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. One writer reminds us the word vengeance must not be confused with revenge. The purpose of vengeance is to satisfy God's holy law. The purpose of revenge is to pacify a personal grudge. God's vengeance is not revenge because it is due to those who have not bowed the knee to him. This picture in our passage is looking to the final day when Christ will lead the final charge against evil. We read about this in Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. These aren't intended to be pleasant pictures to ponder. It'll be a sad day when God's holy justice is poured out onto unbelievers. But we should still look at affliction with eyes of faith, with God's retribution in mind, but also with God's requirement in mind. His requirement is so simple. But there is no greater distance between the one who has recognized them and the one who is not. He will be inflicting vengeance on those who simply do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our, our Lord Jesus When Jesus walked the earth as a humble teaching Messiah, he warned Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We read again in John 3, verses 16 through 18, those familiar words, For God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's what it boils down to. That is the gospel. The one who has recognized and believed that Christ is the Son of God who alone could pay the price of our sin and alone did pay the price and the penalty of our sin with his blood, with his eternal almighty person on the cross. He made it so that we could accept his forgiveness, could accept his righteousness in place of our sin and could accept a sonship from God Almighty as God our Father. And we could know God. And we could be one who obeys the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but this leaves me feeling amazed, honored, and graced by God. Like you, I came to Christ out of a deadness of heart and as an enemy of God. As we're told in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace I have been saved. When I looked at this idea of looking at affliction with eyes of faith, I thought of an experience that the prophet Elisha had with his servant. You see, he had angered the king of Aram. God had used Elisha way too many times to deliver Israel out of the king's hand. And so the king of Aram sent a huge army and he was determined to to kill Elisha and wipe him from the face of the earth. And Elisha's servant was freaking out. And he's standing up on the the rooftop of Elisha's house with him and he's saying, don't you realize what is about to happen here? We're surrounded by this army. And Elisha said in 2 Kings 6, verse 16, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha's servant was perplexed by this until Elisha asked God to open his servant's eyes and then his servant could see myriads of angels with chariots of fire and with horses with, that were set ablaze. And what's amazing is when the, when the army of the king of Aram came rushing down Elisha, having asked God to open his servant's eyes, he asked God to blind the eyes of the army. And God did so. 
looking at affliction with eyes of faith means being convinced that God is at work for his glory and for our good. And even when circumstances seem darkest, God has promised that he is no less at work. He is no less at work for his glory and for our good. You know, the saddest statement of the state of the unbeliever is in verse 8. That they do not know God. They don't know their creator. The one relationship that they were created to enjoy. And it's because of sin that this is so. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 59 verse 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. And their present separation will lead to an eternal destiny of separation. As verses 9 and 10 state, and these are sad words, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Work wisely and wear your destiny glasses. And this secondly means to look at your destiny with eyes of faith. Your eternal destiny as one of these two, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord or glorifying Jesus as one of his saints a holy one, made so by his righteousness. As a part of looking at your destiny with eyes of faith, expect the sad destruction of most. This eternal destruction is described as being away from the presence of the Lord, or literally away from the face of the Lord. I want to read from you something lengthy from Wayne Grudem. And I think that, that it needs to be stated, and it needs to be stated giving so much evidence from the scriptures. He writes, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Scripture teaches in several passages that there is such a place. At the end of the parable of the talents, in Matthew 25 verse 30, the master says, cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. This is one among several indications that there will be consciousness of punishment after the final judgment. Similarly, at the judgment, the king will say to some, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus says that those thus condemned will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In this text, the parallel between eternal life and eternal punishment indicates that both states will be without end. Jesus refers to hell in Mark 9:43 as unquenchable fire. He says that hell is a place where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 48. 
The story of the rich man and Lazarus also includes horrible consciousness of punishment. Luke 16 states, The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this fire. He then begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house. Where he says in verse 28, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. When we turn to Revelation, the descriptions of the eternal punishment are also very explicit. Revelation 14 verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And then Wayne Grudem closes this section saying, this passage very clearly affirms the idea of eternal conscious punishment of unbelievers. Obviously, we don't revel in the destruction that unbelievers will receive. We deserve hell just as much as anyone does. But the fact that this is a sad truth does not make it any less true. As James Denny says, if there is any truth in Scripture at all, this is true, that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ incur an infinite and irreparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Wearing your destiny glasses means looking at the unbeliever with compassion Knowing, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And our prayer and our efforts should be toward accomplishing what God has done for us. Which Paul also writes two verses later. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As you expect the sad destruction of most, also expect joyous celebration for God's saints. We're told that this will happen when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Believers are described in two ways here. Glorifying God in his making us his holy saints and marveling at the presence of Jesus. I believe that we will be riding with Jesus at his second coming to earth. This is after the rapture and the the time of tribulation. And all of this will, for each of us, be the case because a testimony of the gospel was believed. How beautiful that is. And as you look at your destiny with eyes of faith, maybe you're drawn to the teaching that Jesus taught describing sheep 
and goats. He says in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, now notice he's not talking about actual sheep or actual goats. He's not talking about people looking different from one from the other. They're just, they are people who are being separated as if they were as different as a sheep is from a goat. He says, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I don't, if that doesn't blow your mind, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, I don't know what will. But then he says in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I know that people today do not like binary descriptions, meaning it's, it's either one or the other. But the gospel is very binary. Someone is either saved and set aside for heaven, or they are unsaved and set aside for hell. A person is either considered a sheep or a goat. A person is either going to face eternal destruction or be glorifying Jesus as his saint. A person is either considered worthy of the kingdom of God because of his being in Christ or they will receive vengeance as one who does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Looking at your destiny through eyes of faith should lead you first to ensure that you will be a part of the joyous celebration of God's saints by trusting Christ alone for your salvation. And looking at your destiny through eyes of faith should lead you to approach everyone else as a precious soul who will live either separated from God in hell or will live bathed in God's gracious presence in heaven. Looking through these eyes means looking at others through the lens of reconciliation. As 2 Corinthians 5 verses 17 through 20 describes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That should be our position toward unbelievers. That should be our plea. Be reconciled to God. Work wisely. 
I know it sounds kind of corny, but I'll say it one more time. Always wear your destiny glasses. You need to be able to trust God's plan, even when you don't see God's path forward. Let me describe a scenario to you that kind of came to play in my mind, and it relates to the climate of affliction and persecution that God's people live with, and, and that I believe as this day nears, we will live with only more and more. We're playing the basketball game of our lifetime, if you will, against a crooked team in our rival's gym. They're breaking every rule, double dribbling, setting moving picks, goaltending, elbowing. The refs are obviously calling fouls in favor for the other team. Our star player isn't even on the court because he's taken the privileged position of CEO of the whole league. We keep in mind that he promised that he's, gonna, he's not going to let things get out of hand. He also promised that in the end, he will win. And as a result, we will win too. We look to when he will do as he promised and take the court, but the clock is moving toward the final seconds of the game. Then finally, he steps up to enter the game with seconds left. He doesn't have to break the rules. He wrote the rules. He made the game. He built the stadium. He knows plays that only he can do that count for 100 points per basket. Half-court shots with the ball bouncing off the rafters, alley-ooping to himself from the other end of the court. Not only does he know which shots count for 100 points apiece, he's the only one that can make them happen. And in the end, it doesn't matter how challenging the game had become because our star player came through just as he said he would. And we get to marvel at him and live in the glory of of his might. That's our Jesus. There's nothing that needs to change about who he is. He will accomplish all that he said that he would. We just need to look at affliction and our destiny with eyes of faith. Faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving all of yourself to us. Thank you for allowing us to know you. Thank you for giving us the grace that allows us to obey the gospel of Christ Jesus. Lord, this world is marked by sin. This world is marked by pain. This world is marked by sickness some of which that we have felt acutely more than ever before as a body. And Lord, some of us are dying. Some of us are being eaten from the inside out by the effects of sin called cancer. And Lord, we need for you to give us eyes of faith once again. Eyes of faith that see that while our body is weak and maybe dwindling away, that all the more that we can look ahead and know that you have got it in the bag and that you've got us in your hand. And Lord, we can trust you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use us 
in each other's lives to encourage one another to trust you more, to remind one another of these eternal truths that we are not alone and we cannot lose. Lord, I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus.